Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the discovery of Pitcairn Island, the largest Anglo-Saxon gold discovery in Britain, and the largest tsunami in recorded history. The events took place on July 3rd, 5th, and 9th. July 3rd, 1767, Pitcairn Island is discovered by midshipman Robert Pitcairn on an expedition commanded by Philip Carteret. The earliest known settlers of the Pitcairn Islands were Polynesians who appear to have settled on Pitcairn Island and Henderson Island by the 11th century and on the more populous Mangareva Island, 340 miles to the northwest, for about 400 years. It is not certain why the society disappeared, but it is probably related to the deforestation of Mangareva and the subsequent decline of its culture. Pitcairn was not capable of sustaining large numbers of people without a relationship with other populous islands. By the mid-1400s, the trade routes between the islands and French Polynesia had broken down. Important natural resources were exhausted and a period of civil war began on Mangareva causing the small populations of Henderson and Pitcairn to be cut off and eventually become extinct. The British rediscovered the island again on July 3, 1767, on a voyage led by Captain Philip Carteret, and named it after the 15-year-old Robert Pitcairn, son of John Pitcairn, the crew member who first spotted the island. After leaving Tahiti on September 22, 1789, a man named Fletcher Christian sailed the HMS Bounty west in search of a safe haven. Fletcher took over the ship in a mutiny six months earlier. He then formed the idea of settling on Pitcairn Island, far to the east of Tahiti. The island had been reported in 1767, but its exact location was never verified. After months of searching, Christian rediscovered the island on January 15, 1790 over 200 miles from its reported location. The group consisted of nine Englishmen from the HMS Bounty, led by Fletcher Christian, along with 18 native Tahitian men and women. Upon arriving at the island, the ship was unloaded and stripped of its masts for use on the island. Five days after their arrival, the ship was burned and destroyed, either as an agreed-upon precaution against discovery or possibly as an unauthorized act there was now no means of escape. The island proved as an ideal haven for the mutineers, uninhabited and virtually inaccessible, with plenty of food, water, and fertile land. For a while, the mutineers and Tahitians existed peacefully. Christian settled down with a Tahitian woman named Isabella. Their son, named Thursday October Christian, was the first child born on the island, and others followed. Christian's authority as leader gradually diminished, and tensions between Europeans and Tahitians began to rise. Two men, Matthew Quintal and William McCoy, were especially harsh to the Polynesian men and women. McCoy figured out how to distill brandy from tea root and built a still. He and Quintal were constantly drunk. When one woman, named Tavarua, did not catch enough fish, McCoy bit off her ear. Tavarua later fell or possibly jumped, from a cliff to her death in 1799. Disagreements and infidelity continued among the group, 
leading to more death over the years. European John Williams had sex with a Polynesian woman named Hutia, the wife of a man named Tararu. The Tahitian leader, Minari, attacked Williams over this, as it was an insult to Minari's family. Williams' wife died soon after, possibly by suicide after learning of her husband's infidelity. Tararu and a man named Hu plotted to kill the white men in retribution. Hu tried unsuccessfully to kill European Isaac Martin by pushing him off a cliff. After Williams' wife died, Williams took Hutia away from Tararu to live with him, and Tararu tried and failed to murder Williams. Hutia decided to poison Tararu in retaliation and unwittingly killed both Tararu and Hu. On September 20, 1793, the four remaining Polynesian men stole muskets and set out to kill all of the Englishmen. Within hours, they beheaded Isaac Martin and John Mills, shot and killed John Williams and William Brown, and fatally wounded Fletcher Christian in a series of carefully executed murders. Christian was ambushed while working in his fields, first shot and then butchered with an axe. Three of the Englishmen's wives took revenge, killing Polynesian men Te Moa and Niuha. Taraura, the Tahitian wife of Englishman Ned Young, beheaded a Polynesian man named Titahiti while he slept, and Matthew Quintal killed the Tahitian leader Minari in a violent fight. Europeans Ned Young and John Adams assumed leadership and secured a tenuous calm disrupted by the drunken behavior of McCoy and Quintal. The two men and some women spent their days in an alcoholic stupor, and some women attempted to leave the island in a makeshift boat, but could not launch it successfully. On April 20th, 1798, McCoy attached a rock to his neck with a rope and jumped over a cliff to his death. Quintal became increasingly erratic. He demanded to take Isabella, Fletcher Christian's widow, as his wife and threatened to kill Christian's children if his demands were not granted. Ned Young and John Adams invited Quintal to Young's home, where they overpowered him and executed him with an axe. Young and Adams became interested in Christianity. Young taught Adams to read using the Bible from the HMS Bounty. After Young succumbed to asthma and passed away in 1800, Adams took responsibility for the education and well-being of the nine remaining women and 19 children. Using the Bible, he taught literacy and Christianity and kept peace on the island. This was the situation in February of 1808 when an American sealing ship landed on Pitcairn unexpectedly and discovered the thriving community. News of the discovery did not reach Britain until 1810 and was overlooked due to a war with France. In 1814, two British warships, HMS Britain and HMS Tagus, chanced upon Pitcairn. Among those who greeted them were Fletcher Christian's son, Thursday October Christian, and Ned Young's son, George Young. On shore, they found a population of 46, mainly young islanders led by John Adams. After receiving the two captains' reports, the Royal Navy decided to take no action. In the following years, many ships stopped at Pitcairn Island and heard Adams' various stories of the foundation of the Pitcairn settlement. During the 1820s, three British adventurers named John Buffett, John Evans, and George Nobbs settled on the island and married children of the mutineers. John Adams died in 1829 
honored as the founder and father of a community that became celebrated over the next century as an example of Victorian morality. Following Adams' death, George Nobbs, a veteran of the British Navy, was chosen as Adams' successor, but John Buffett and Thursday October Christian, the son of Fletcher Christian, and the first child born on the island, were also important leaders during this time. Many direct descendants of the HMS Bounty still reside on Pitcairn Island today. The population peaked at 233 in 1937, but many have chosen to leave the island, primarily to New Zealand. The current population is estimated to be between 40 and 60 people. Here's my take on the Pitcairn Islands. They have a very interesting history. The tropical climate seemed to work out pretty well in this scenario, but hierarchy and bad actors evolve with every settlement, and it's really important to believe in something bigger when you're out there all by yourself. July 5th, 2009. The largest hoard of Anglo-Saxon gold ever discovered is found in Britain. The Staffordshire Hoard is the largest hoard of Anglo-Saxon gold and silver metalwork ever found. It consists of almost 4,600 items and metal fragments, amounting to a total of 11 pounds of gold, 3 pounds of silver, and roughly 3,500 pieces of jewelry. It is described by historian Kat Jarman as possibly the finest collection of early medieval artifacts ever discovered. The hoard was probably deposited between 650 and 675 and contains artifacts likely manufactured during the 6th and 7th centuries. On July 5, 2009, Terry Herbert, a member of Blockswitch Research and Metal Detecting Club, was searching an area of recently plowed farmland with a metal detector near Hammerwich, Staffordshire, and recovered 244 gold objects. The landowner, Fred Johnson, granted permission for an excavation to search for the rest of the hoard. Aside from three crosses, the items in the hoard are military, including many finely worked silver and gold sword decorations removed from weaponry. The removal of the sword decorations finds a parallel to Beowulf, which mentions warriors stripping them from enemy swords. There are no domestic objects, such as drinking vessels or eating utensils, or feminine jewelry, which are more common Anglo-Saxon gold finds. Reportedly, the contents show every sign of being carefully selected. One of the most intriguing items in the hoard is a small strip of gold with a biblical quote that translates to Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. It has been suggested that the inscription shows angst in the face of a great threat, and this could only have been a Viking invasion. The gold strip may have originally been fastened to a shield, a sword belt, or a stem of a cross. On November 25, 2009, the hoard was valued at roughly 3.3 million pounds, which is the sum that must be paid as a reward to the finder and landowner to be shared equally by any museum that wishes to acquire the hoard. Two museums initially raised enough money to display the items together, and many other museums have displayed the items since then over the following years.
Here's my take on the Staffordshire Horde. Makes you look at those nerds wandering the beach with metal detectors a little differently. Maybe not. But the man that discovered this hoard certainly got paid. Finding treasure is something I've dreamed about since I was a kid, and I shared my construction story on a previous episode when I discussed the Hoxon Horde, but I'll share it again because it's just so fucking dumb and funny to me. I was digging a trench to install a water line, and my shovel hit a box that was buried underground. I dug up the box and saw a seam along the top but could not pry it open. There was a concrete pillar on each side of the stairs going into the building where I was working. So I picked up the box and slammed it against the column, breaking the concrete but not the box. That's when I realized the box wasn't a box at all, but a deep stepping stone from an old sidewalk. I got so excited and so stupid about finding treasure that I lost track of logic and created a lot more work to fix that pillar. July 9th, 1958. A strike-slip earthquake in the Latuya Bay of Alaska causes a landslide that produces a mega-tsunami. The run-up from the waves reaches over 1,720 feet. Latuya Bay is a ford located on the Fairweather Fault in the northeastern part of the Gulf of Alaska. It is a T-shaped bay with a width of 2 miles and a length of 7 miles. Latuya Bay is an ice-scoured tidal inlet with a maximum depth of 722 feet. The narrow entrance of the bay has a depth of only 33 feet. The two arms that create the top of the T-shape of the bay are the Gilbert and Krillin inlets and are part of a trench on the Fairweather Fault. Near the crest of the Fairweather Mountains sit the Latuya and North Krillin glaciers. They are each about 12 miles long and 1 mile wide, with an elevation of 4,000 feet. The 1958 Latuya Bay earthquake occurred at 10.15 p.m. with a moment magnitude between 7.8 to 8.3 and a maximum Mercalli intensity of 11, which is known as extreme. The strike-slip earthquake took place on the Fairweather Fault and triggered a rock slide of 40 million cubic yards and about 90 million tons into the narrow inlet of Latuya Bay. The shock was felt in southeastern Alaskan cities over an area of 400,000 square miles, as far south as Seattle, Washington, and as far east as Whitehorse, Yukon, Canada. The impact was heard 50 miles away and the sudden displacement of water resulted in a mega-tsunami that washed out trees to a maximum elevation of 1,722 feet at the entrance of Gilbert Inlet. This is the largest and most significant mega-tsunami in modern times. It forced a re-evaluation of large wave events and the recognition of impact events, rock falls, and landslides as causes of very large waves. A total of five people were killed during the tsunami, which left many people injured and many homes destroyed. Two people from a fishing boat died as a result of being caught by a wave in the bay. Two more individuals, a fishing boat captain and his seven-year-old son, 
were struck by the wave and lifted hundreds of feet into the air by the swell. Remarkably, both survived with minimal injuries. Infrastructure such as bridges, docks, and oil lines all sustained damage. A wave tower collapsed and a cabin was damaged beyond repair. Underwater cables that supported the Alaska communication system were cut. Many trees were swept away, decimating the shoreline surrounding forest and leaving the high tide line barren and with few upright surviving trees. The mega tsunami flooded the entire bay and created a damage line up to 700 feet around the outline of the bay, with evidence of this damage line still visible from outer space to this day. The eyewitness accounts from the event are something out of a Hollywood movie. During that time of year in Alaska, it is actually still daylight at 10 p.m. Anchored in a cove near the west side of the entrance of the bay, Ville and Vivian Swanson were on their fishing boat when the earthquake hit. What Bill describes is extraordinary. With the first jolt, I tumbled out of the bunk and looked toward the head of the bay where all the noise was coming from. The mountains were shaking something awful, with the slide of rock and snow, but what I noticed mostly was the glacier, the North Glacier, the one they call Latuya Glacier. I know you can't ordinarily see that glacier from where I was anchored. People shake their heads when I tell them I saw it that night. I can't help it if they don't believe me. I know the glacier is hidden by the point when you're in Anchorage Cove, but I know what I saw that night too. The glacier had risen in the air and moved forward, so it was in sight. It must have risen several hundred feet. I don't mean it was just hanging in the air. It seems to be solid, but it was jumping and shaking like crazy. Big chunks of ice were falling off the face of it and down into the water. That was six miles away and they still looked like big chunks. They came off the glacier like a big load of rocks spilling out of a dump truck. That went on for a little while, it's hard to tell just how long, and then suddenly the glacier dropped back out of sight and there was a big wall of water going over the point. The waves started for us right after that and I was too busy to tell what else was happening up there. Howard G. Ulrich and his seven-year-old son were in Latuya Bay aboard their boat when the earthquake struck. They were anchored in a small inlet on the southern side of the bay. Ulrich observed the wave's formation from the deck, hearing a very loud smash at the base of Latuya Bay. In his record of the wave, he notes the appearance and how it formed. The wave definitely started in Gilbert Inlet, just before the end of the quake. It was not a wave at first. It was like an explosion. The wave came out of the lower part and looked like the smallest part of the whole thing. The wave did not go up 1,800 feet, the water splashed there. The wave made its way to his boat two to three minutes after he saw it and carried the boat down the southern shore and then back near the center of the bay. Ulrich was able to control the boat once the main wave passed, maneuvering through the subsequent waves up to 20 feet high until he could finally exit the bay. There is an ongoing debate regarding whether the mega tsunami was a result of a rockfall generated by the earthquake or a result of the earthquake itself. The most recent studies conclude that a dual rock slide created the event. The study explains that during the first rock slide, water was injected under a glacier, mixing with sediment released from the earthquake, 
resulting in enough pressure to lift the glacier and create a much larger second rock slide. This additional volume would explain the large changes in the underwater shape of the sea floor in the bay, and the additional energy of waves, especially at the western end of the bay. The core samples show a 230-foot deep layer of reworked sediment on the sea floor. All of this resulting in the largest tsunami in recorded history. Here's my take on the Latuya Bay earthquake. Holy shit. Can you imagine how intense that boat ride must have been for Ulrich and his seven-year-old son? My son is seven years old, and the open water is one of my biggest fears. Ulrich is lucky the boat didn't sink from the weight of his giant iron balls. Can we get a fucking movie? Imagine that shit on IMAX, and it's real life. Not another movie about the apocalypse. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. July 5th, 1954. The BBC broadcasts its first daily television news bulletin. Brainwashing weak people for almost 70 years now. Kind of impressive. July 5th, 2012. The Shard in London is inaugurated as the tallest building in Europe, with a height of 1,020 feet. Guess where that ranks in the world? Not even in the top 100. July 6th, 2003. The 70-meter Yev Pretoria planetary radar sends a message to extraterrestrial intelligence to five stars. The messages will arrive at these stars in 2036, 2040, 2044, and 2049. It sounds cool. It really does. But it's probably just a huge waste of time and money and no more effective than screaming into the sky. I hope I'm wrong. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.